I give thanks for Catherine reading our scripture lesson this morning that comes to us from the book of Mark and sets the stage as we are beginning a new series this morning. And I must say, I think that the timing of this series is further evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit. Michael and I planned all of our series for 2020, the first month he arrived almost a year ago. And without any inclination about what might be going on in our world at this moment, we designed this series that begins today. And I cannot be more glad that we did. Our new series is called Love Where You Live. And it's a chance for us to consider how we put into action the work to which we have been called. For the past seven weeks, we've been discerning what this work might be, how the Holy Spirit is leading us. And over the next four weeks, we'll be describing the practical how-to of actually going out and serving in the mission fields. We already know what the mission fields are. We established those back in March. For the disciples, they were Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That was their immediate area, their regional area, their national area, and the rest of the globe. For us during the series, we will recontextualize what each of those areas mean. Our Jerusalem will be where we sleep. Our Judea will be where we walk. Our Samaria will be where we drive. And the ends of our earth will be just that. They'll be everywhere that we are not. And so much of each of those places right now are in tension, or maybe even some of them are in chaos. I believe that there's not a better time for us to consider how we can love where we live. And so let us dive into this first week and consider what it means to love where we sleep. And if I could add a, a subtitle to this sermon, it would be Defeating Dualism. And I hope that you will understand what I mean in just a minute. But I'd like to begin this sermon with a prayer. As I do before every sermon, we pray together for illumination. But this time I would like to use a prayer that Michael wrote last Sunday and posted on Facebook. Not only was it a beautiful prayer that I felt articulated much of what I was internalizing, it also is apropos to our sermon this morning and the current state of much of our world. And so this prayer is a bit longer than our usual sermon introduction prayer, but I invite you to go with me to God with these words from our senior pastor. Will you pray with me? Precious risen Lord Jesus Christ, you came as a light of the world, but people loved shadows because they feared their deeds would be exposed. Thank you, Lord, for the cameras that keep revealing what we do not want to see. Thank you for the cameras four years ago in Minneapolis that streamed the death of Philando Castile. Thank you for the cameras there this week that witnessed the life and death of George Floyd. Thank you for exposing what happened to Alton Sterling, Ahmaud Arbery, Eric Gardner, and a 12-year-old named Tamir Rice. Thank you for the recording that bears witness to Kenneth Walker's voice as he watched over Breonna Taylor and called 911 to say, I don't know what happened. Somebody kicked in the door and shot my girlfriend. You are shining a light on what has long happened in darkness and we dare not turn away. We can no longer live as if we do not know. You have shown some of us that we are white. We'd rather not think of ourselves that way. We'd like to say, I'm not a white Christian, I'm just a Christian, period. 
We like to say we do not see color and we like to believe that we have done our part, but you have exposed how much we have not understood or seen. We have not had to hear our mothers give us the talk about how to walk away in such a way that people won't call the authorities to check us out. We have not had to hear about how to handle ourselves when they inevitably do anyway. We have sometimes said, but what about? Because we have not wanted to listen every day as black sons and daughters, fathers and mothers, grandpas and grandmas have shouted, what about to each other? Trying to solve the riddle of what would be the best way to make white people understand. For they know that both Martin and Malcolm were martyred and they know that maybe there is no right way to make us understand what we do not want to face. We do not want to know that we were white, that we are, but whether we like it or not, we are discovering that whiteness is defined by what you can afford not to know. But you, the God of truth, you will not let us live as if we did not know. Not a single sparrow falls to the ground without your knowledge. And you will not let us live as if we did not know the names and lives and deaths of all these your children. And if we truly knew the worth of those who keep dying for some reason, the knowledge would be too terrible and wonderful for us. Too wonderful to see your glory as it shines in your image and your image bearers. Too terrible to realize how disposable some lives are in our nation. They have been tossed away and we didn't even know. How could we not know? The knowledge is too wonderful and terrible for some of us. We do not know what to do next and we will surely do it badly. And we will surely act in ignorance because of what we still do not know. We are afraid to act because our insufficiencies will be exposed. But neither can we act as if we did not know. We ask your blessing on every person who steps into the light to expose what has hidden in shadows. We ask a special blessing on those who expose the deeds of their own people. Strengthen clergy who expose the abuses of their colleagues. Honor the doctors who raise alarms about peers who push addictive prescriptions. Protect any police officers who speak up and intervene against the abuses of the power they are given. Let your grace and mercy abound to any who are willing to confess their own sin and the abuses of their own tribe. Let us honor all of those who are willing to shine your light into the shadows where evil hides and give us the courage to walk in light. Do not let us live as if we did not know, for we cannot offer true worship unless we offer it in spirit and in truth. Terrible and wonderful. You will set us free. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. I give thanks for that prayer that Michael has written for us and that I asked him if we could read and pray together as a church to begin this sermon because a lot has been going on in our world. The limits of pre-recording worship sometimes um, undercut our, our ability to speak to the moment. But we, we have, we preachers, you know, we have a lot of preacher friends.
And I never got to see them though until we started this pre-recording, until COVID-19 came around. This week has been an especially important one for me to listen to other preachers. I know a lot of preachers who wrote two sermons last week. Some scrapped their first sermons so they could speak out against violence and solidarity with our African-American sisters and brothers. I also know other preachers who took to their pulpits with newly written messages that warned against violent protests and give their support to women and men that are sworn to serve and protect. And as each of these messages fell into one category or another, I was reminded of a heartbreaking truth. We are possessed by a spirit of dualism. We can't help but reduce our conversations and choices to two options. There are good people and there are bad people. There is right and there is wrong. There is holy, there's unclean. There are protesters and there are police. And this narrative of this or that is ingrained in us at such a young age. And it makes sense because it seems natural. It seems like it's part of the created world, right? There's night and day, dark and light hot and cold. There's Michael Jordan or LeBron James. This dualism though, it's incredibly useful because it helps us know when we are on the right side of things, right? I mean, even if we don't know who we are or what to think, it's enough for us to know we aren't like them. We like that kind of clarity. The world has too many complications. It's more helpful if someone can lay it out for us in black and white. And this is not a new phenomenon, of course. People say we have the most polarized society in history. And I don't know that that's actually true. Things were pretty polarized in the first century as well. Jesus preached once about a Pharisee who prayed, thank you, God, that I'm not like the tax collector. Thank you, God, that I'm this and I'm not that. And in today's passage, it seems like there's a stark line between Jesus on the one side against the Pharisees and the scribes on the other. Or more accurately, the Pharisees and the scribes are against Jesus. Jesus was just minding his own business, eating a meal with his disciples when the religious leaders had to interject themselves into their peaceful gathering. They showed up at Jesus's table And they noticed that some of Jesus's disciples failed to wash their hands before their meal. Nowadays, this is a major faux pas because of the potential spread of coronavirus. But for the Pharisees, washing hands was a matter of ritual purity. And this is an important part. The scriptures themselves are kind of unclear about how the Jewish people should wash their hands. The tradition that the Pharisees appealed to wasn't actually in the Bible. It was something that had been added to help out people who wanted to know for sure whether their hands were ritually pure. Hand washing wasn't the most important thing in the world, but it was one of the most obvious. The disciples, they knew the rules and they still broke the rules. There was a right and there was a wrong And the Pharisees were happy to point out the disciples were on the wrong side of that line. They were also happy to guess what it meant about Jesus. Jesus, why do you let your disciples do this? Why won't you disavow this behavior? Why won't you call them out? 
And Jesus comes back with a quote from Isaiah. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. And then he adds a bit that wasn't in Isaiah. He says, you have, you, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. In my mind, that would have been a perfect place for, for Jesus to just drop the mic. Like boom, shakalaka, in your face, I'm out. But he keeps going. And I want to tell you about a paraphrase that comes from the message. It's a version of the Bible written by Eugene Peterson. And it says this, he went on, well, good for you. You get rid of God's command so you won't be inconvenienced in following the religious fashions. Moses said, respect your father and your mother and anyone denouncing father and mother should be killed. But you weasel out of that by saying that it's perfectly acceptable to say to father or mother, gift, what I owe you, I've given as a gift to God thus relieving yourself of obligation to your father and your mother. You scratch out God's words and scrawl a whim in its place. You do a lot of things like this, Jesus says. Jesus is spitting like straight fire onto these gentlemen of great religious civility. I mean, anybody can point out hypocrisy. Anybody can avoid real criticism by saying, you're not as good as you think you are. But Jesus does so much more. He doesn't just call the Pharisees hypocrites. They aren't just failing to live up to their rules. Jesus says that their rules are actively insane. They're incoherent. Jesus says the only reason you think you understand one part of God's word so clearly is because you insist on ignoring another part of God's word. Jesus says you will use the clarity of the law to break the law. He says, you, you have told so many people that they were blessed for giving to the te temple that you never even noticed that their parents are starving. You think that you can honor God enough to justify dishonoring your mother, mother and your father? Jesus says, you've taught your people how to do everything right just so that they could avoid doing right by their family. And that, my friends, is the danger of duality. There really is such a thing as right and wrong, as good and evil. That's not what I mean when I talk about dualism or duality. Duality is not a choice between good and evil. No, duality is the lie that says we must choose between two goods. Duality says that there's one good thing and this good thing must defeat the other. Duality says that we must betray one good thing in order to have the other. It says we have to choose. We can be holy as a church that is set apart from the world, or we can be ambassadors of reconciliation, but we cannot be both. But the scriptures command us to be both. Duality says that we can demand justice or we can be peacemakers, but not both. Duality says that black lives matter must mean that other lives don't. Duality says that you can honor God or honor family, but not both. Maybe that last one doesn't quite fit for you, right? Maybe it never occurred to you that there might be a hard choice to be made between family and God. Maybe it seems strange to you that the Pharisees asked Jesus, 
Why don't your disciples wash their hands? And he responded by saying, why don't you make people send their mama some money? But it seems entirely appropriate to me because it seems as if our families are where dualism goes to die. Before we love where we live, we have to learn to love where we sleep. And we love the people who share our home. Maybe these folks don't sleep under the same roof as you do. Maybe these folks aren't even biologically related to you. But they're the people who know us at our most vulnerable. The ones with whom we don't mind offering to be this kind of person or that kind of person like we would in public. And our family are the first people whom God invites us to know and honor and love, not because they always delight us, but simply because they are. We don't get to choose our favorite parts of our family, but instead we love them. If we want to love the rest of the world, and if we want to break down dualism in the world, then we have to first do it within our own families. And let me be the first to admit, this can be the hardest place to do the work of love. And notice I said the work of love because it's not just the easy parts of love. It's not just saying, I love you, but the work that is willing to engage in uncomfortable conversations. The, the work that compels us to ask for forgiveness is the work that allows us to forgive even those that have wounded us the deepest and happen to also be the closest. Being truthful with our family is the first step in being truthful with ourselves. It's a place where we can admit our own limits. So how do we do it? How do we love where we sleep? How do we love the closest people to us? How do we remove this compulsion to choose between two things that both can be good? I think it's actually very simple. Well, I think the first step is simple. I think the whole process is long. But the first step is one we're often afraid to take. It takes courage to tell your child who's asking questions or your parent who questions you or your sibling or your friend. I don't know. But I think the way we get out of our own duality is recognizing that there actually might be another good as well. That just because a choice or an idea or a belief is different than your own, that doesn't mean that it can't also be viable. I mean, think about the choices you have made as an individual or a family. The choice to live what you do, the choice to go to school what you do, the choice to go to church what you do. These, these are all good choices. And the choices you made, sure, are great. But that doesn't make all other choices less good or not viable. Instead of digging ourselves into a position of absolute certainty because it fits neatly in our box of ideas, when we are willing to accept that our own experience is just that, our own experience, and see that other people's experiences and choices are also full of goodness, 
When we open ourselves up to the possibility to seeing the world from a completely different perspective, to hearing why a person thinks the way they do, to understand why a person of a different faith believes what they do. When we have the courage to open up our minds to the way other people choose to live their lives, we pave the way for the Holy Spirit to teach us something new. And so, church family, I think it's time. Time for each one of us to admit that we might be Pharisees. Like, we might be living in a world that we've created that only sees a portion of the goodness God created because it comes only from the choices we've made. And in so doing, We've turned our eyes away from the totality of how God expresses God's self, the goodness that is beyond our own experience. And let me say, some of us might already be in a place of openness to new ways of seeing goodness in the world. Maybe you're saying, yeah, I know I don't know enough, but I don't know how to talk about these things with my family. I don't know how to move forward beyond unknowing. So to everyone, I want to offer this invitation. And this is a very specific, practical next step you can take. Jennifer Precht, wife of our senior pastor, Michael, put on Facebook the other day that she's gonna be reading a book about talking to white children regarding racism. The book is called Raising White Kids. And she invited anyone that would like to join her in reading that book to share in a weekly conversation via Zoom. And I wanna encourage everybody to consider joining us for that as she leads us through it. Whether your child is two months, two years, 12, 20, 200, whether you don't have kids, you've never had kids, you never will have kids. And if you don't find this to be a compelling conversation because it doesn't seem to apply to you, I invite you to consider joining us anyway, because this conversation is more than just about raising children. It's about asking questions. It's about looking for new ways of seeing goodness in the world. This conversation will ask, what do we do when all we know is that we don't know what to do? Because life is not just about deciding which choice is good or not but it's helping those that you love see that there even are other choices and that just because you've lived your life a certain way doesn't mean that a way somebody else has lived their life is any less valuable. And that through loving the ones closest to us, we honor them by helping them see beyond their own perspective into a world full of goodness. And so I invite you to start here because I think this is a place where people can come together to talk about a specific topic that is laced with sensitivity. And those that are super certain about their opinions regarding race and child rearing, they'll have a chance to step back and ask how might they have been living into this fictional duality, this way of seeing the world being the only way to see the world. And it's a place for those who are already struggling with unknowing to dive in and consider how to better have conversations of uncertainty with the people you love the most. And I'm sure this might not be the thing for everyone. 
You might not be a reader. You might not be a Zoomer. You might not be into conversations about parenting or things that make you uncomfortable. But rest assured, each week throughout this series, we're gonna be offering practical ways you can love where you live. Last series was all about receiving from you your discernment about where the Holy Spirit was leading. This series is all about offering practical equipment for doing the work of loving where we live. And so church, I pray. I pray that we will not be a people that are so beholden to our instances of rightness that we neglect the invitation to holiness. I pray that we won't try to weasel the rules to fit our own definitions of how things ought to be rather than opening ourselves up to the possibility of there being more than just one way. And I pray that we will all take the next step to engage the ones we love in authentic conversations of vulnerability and transparency. And in so doing, are able to show the world what love can actually look like. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.